0: Thank you, it's great to be with you uh, this evening. Uh, I came here to Beaver Falls to get away from the snow. Uh, it's not often you can say that, right? Uh, Philadelphia, where I live, is getting a lot more than we've had here. So yes, I'm here to get away from the snow. Um, it's a great pleasure to be with you and to have the opportunity to, uh, to address you on this subject, which is really the only thing I ever talk about. People give different titles to my talks, but essentially, this is the only thing I ever talk about wherever I go. So, here it is. Um, Back in 2008, my former colleague at Westminster Seminary in California, where I taught at the time, Mike Horton, wrote a book which he entitled, Christless Christianity. He began that book recalling Donald Gray Barnhouse's vision of what would happen if Satan took over Philadelphia. Some of you might think that Satan has taken over Philadelphia and is embodied in their football team, but that's a whole other uh, discussion. According to Donald Gray Barnhouse, what would happen if Satan took over Philadelphia is this. All the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. The pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at one another. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. Now, Mike's argument in the book is that in many respects, that is precisely what has happened to the church in North America. Not just liberal churches, but conservative evangelical churches as well. He argues that there is plenty of preaching and teaching in our churches from the Bible that seeks to inculcate good behavior and healthy relationships. But all too often, there is no Jesus in any of this. Now, at the same time that Mike was writing this book, I was transitioning from my time at Westminster in California to Grove City College, Uh, and I have to say I thought that Mike was overstating the case. Until I spent my first year at Grove City College as a chapel checker. It was my job to scan student IDs to ensure that they attended the requisite number of chapels each semester. And it was a painful experience. I listened to a range of speakers, some of them parents of graduating seniors, some of them local pastors, some from a variety of professional positions, each given 20 minutes to say something that might in some small way change the lives of the students. I still remember the speaker who invited us to identify which kind of tater we might be. A spectator, a commentator, a dictator, an agitator, or a sweet tater. There's 20 minutes of my life that I'll never get back. (laughs) But I heard precious little about Jesus and the gospel. If I heard about Jesus, it was only as an ideal example that we should imitate, preferably by tattooing WWJD on our wrists, because after all, bracelets are so yesterday. And this was not simply an issue in college chapels. I I saw the same thing as I visited different churches from a variety of different denominations. Now, I believe that chapels at Grove City College have got better since then, thankfully, but the phenomenon that Mike described across America has not. There is an absence of Christ-centered preaching in our churches in favor of preaching that focuses on moral performance and psychological uplift, through striving hard to be the best you that you can be. We arrive at church knowing five things that we've done this, wrong this week, and we leave knowing ten things we've done wrong. Oh, I'm so glad I came to church this Sunday. This is the kind of preaching a friend of mine calls, another brick in the backpack preaching, burdening people down with a load that they cannot bear. It is crushing to the soul's of the hearers. And this is perhaps particularly true when it comes to reading and preaching from the Old Testament. Of course, some churches and some people deal with the problem of the Old Testament by ignoring it altogether. I remember visiting the Mennonite Museum in Shipshawana in Indiana. Near the entrance to that museum, it said prominently, we are New Testament Christians. Well, I understand the challenges for a pacifist denomination in acknowledging the Old Testament. But are we talking here about the same New Testament that tells us that all Scripture, and remember Paul is specifically talking about the Old Testament here, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. Others have tried to salvage the Old Testament, but only as a place to go to find inspiring character studies or laws that condemn certain kinds of sinful behavior, perhaps more clearly than anything you can find in the New Testament. But to go to the Old Testament to find Christ, that, it seems, is regarded by many people as strange and perhaps even a dangerous idea. Law and morality, perhaps, can come by Moses, but grace and good news, it seems, are only to be found in the New Testament, and sadly, sometimes barely even there. So, the goal of tonight's talk is to show you that Christ is not merely present in the Old Testament through an occasional appearance of the angel of the Lord here or there, or through the right interpretation of this or that prophecy. I spoke this morning to a local pastor who, when he heard that I was uh, speaking on Christ in the Old Testament, uh, said, oh, yes, uh, like in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 53. Well, yes, but a lot more than that is what I have in view. I want to show you that rightly interpreted, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. And more specifically, it is about the gospel That finds its center in His death, resurrection, and exaltation in glory. And to do that, first I want to show you where this thought comes from, that this is the perspective that the New Testament itself requires us to take towards the Old Testament, for those of you who are New Testament Christians. Second, I want to look at some pitfalls. What do we not mean by seeing Christ in the Old Testament? And then thirdly, I want to give you a thumbnail example of how we can see Christ in particular Old Testament texts. So first, where does the thought of seeing Christ in the Old Testament come from? It's my contention that that is how the New Testament teaches us to read the Old. Recall to begin with the words of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. When He caught up with those two despondent disciples who were leaving Jerusalem unaware of the resurrection. He took them back on a tour of the Old Testament Scriptures and exposed their woefully inadequate knowledge and exegesis, saying to them this, this is Luke 24, 25-27, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. In other words, he gave them a sermon in which he unfolded the Old Testament and showed them how it was fulfilled in him. The point is that according to Jesus, we should expect the message of Moses and the prophets, that is the whole Old Testament, to be Jesus Christ. And the disciples' response was not to be amazed at His cleverness in uncovering references to Himself in such a wide variety of sources. No, they were amazed at their own dullness, that they had failed to see Him in all of these familiar texts. And this was not just Jesus' message on that particular occasion to those two disciples. Luke 24, 44-47 tells us the substance of His teaching to all of the disciples in that 40-day climactic post-resurrection period. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then He opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This, you see, is Jesus' master class in Old Testament interpretation. There's a 40-day class that would be worth signing up to take, wouldn't it? And notice the comprehensiveness of the language that Jesus uses. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the three divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures. In other words, the focus of Jesus' teaching here is not a few messianic texts scattered here and there. The focus of His teaching is the entire Old Testament, what Luke designates the Scriptures. And according to Jesus, the whole Old Testament Scriptures are a message about Christ. More specifically, the central focus of the entire Old Testament is the sufferings of Christ and His resurrection and the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. The Old Testament is a book that is designed to show us on its every page the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this teaching of Jesus was not lost on His disciples. Peter explicitly formulates the same principle in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted, listen to this, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So did Paul when he testified before King Agrippa. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and His first to rise from the dead will proclaim light to His own people and to the Gentiles, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So, when you, when you interpret the Old Testament correctly, you will find its focus is not primarily stories about moral improvements, or calls for social action, or visions concerning the end times. The central message is Jesus Christ, and specifically His sufferings and the glories that will follow. Now, certainly, if you understand that gospel, it will lead to a new morality in the life of the believer. It will motivate and empower us to meet the needs of a lost world. It will engage our passion for the new heavens and the new earth to be revealed when Christ returns. But the heart of the message of the Old Testament is a message about Christ, which centers in on His sufferings and glory, His death and His resurrection. This focus on the gospel is the center of the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike. And when we understand that, that has a couple of important implications. To begin with, it means that the gospel, the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection is not merely the starting point from which you begin the Christian life, from which you then move on to ethics. No, the heartbeat of our lives as Christians is the gospel. The gospel is not merely the power by which dead sinners are raised to new life, it is also the power by which God's people are transformed. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, presumably Paul is not saying here, I only preached evangelistic sermons when I was there in Corinth, and I ignored the task of discipleship. No, he means that every sermon he preached had a focus on the cross of Christ, whose implications he then drew out for every area of life. To put it simply, he never preached Ephesians 4 through 6, the ethical imperatives, without the gospel foundation in Ephesians 1 through 3. Our sanctification flows out of our justification. And that's important in the contemporary context because, in most cases, our problem is not a lack of knowledge of what we ought to do. There may be exceptions, but in my own experience, most Christians know a great deal about how they ought to live. The problem is that we don't live in accordance with what we know. The gap is not in our knowledge, the gap is in our obedience. And how do we address that gap? Ethical sermons and Bible studies, no matter how accurately biblical, tend simply to add to the burden of guilt that we feel as Christians. It's simply putting yet another brick in our backpack. And that teaching yields little by way of results, in my experience. But the gospel, on the other hand, has the power to change lives at a deep level. As men and women come to see both the true depth of their sin that actually their feelings of guilt were, if anything, too shallow, while at the same time the glorious good news that Jesus Christ is our substitute, who has taken upon Himself the punishment that all of our sin deserved and has lived that perfect life in our place. Freed from our guilt, filled with the joy that comes from the gospel, these people are now equipped to begin to change. This is what the old Scottish uh, pastor, Thomas Chalmers, called the expulsive power of a new affection, which I really came to understand in a new way when I was teaching at Grove City College. You would see early in the semester a young man uh, who had evidently just rolled out of his bed uh, and was meandering across uh, the campus to class. His hair was disheveled. uh, He was wearing a ratty old T-shirt. His jeans were torn and not in an ironic way. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and then, three weeks later, you'd see the same young man. And now his hair is combed and washed. And he's got, you know, dockers and a, and a polo shirt. And as he walks by, you get a whiff of cologne. And you say to yourself, what happened to this young man? Well, you all know what happened, right? A girl, right? Now, his mom has been on him for the last four years, right, saying, I'll never have grandchildren unless you shape up your act. The voice of the law was powerless to change him. But when his heart was changed, his behavior followed the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, this approach then suggests that biblical preaching is much more than mere instruction. Preaching and hearing God's word is itself worship in the most profound sense. Its goal is doxological, that is, that men and women might see in a new way the glory of God and bow their hearts in adoration and praise. And the same should be true of our Bible studies. Such study of God's Word will certainly change lives, but it is concerned even more fundamentally that God should be glorified. Like the Apostle Paul, we pray, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. When you read academic commentaries on Ephesians, they puzzle over that. What's Paul doing here? Has he lost the train of his argument? That's because the commentators aren't pastors, they don't preach. This is Paul preaching and saying, the goal of all of this rich and wonderful theology is you would glorify God in the way He deserves to be glorified. Second, though, potential pitfalls. How, 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 do, how do some people do this wrong? Well, what do we need to avoid if we're going to preach Christ and teach Christ properly from the Old Testament? Well, the first mistake some people make is allegorical interpretation. In their eagerness to find and to preach Christ from the Old Testament, preachers have sometimes strayed into allegory. In allegorical interpretation, the message does not flow out of understanding the text uh, within its original historical and literary context. It fastens on some detail in the text and applies it directly to the present context. It knows instinctively that the message must be Christ, but it isn't quite sure how to get from here to there. It's like the story that Graham Goldsworthy tells about the Australian Sunday school teacher who was concerned that her lessons were getting too predictable. So she decided, okay, this week I'm gonna change it up. Uh, Children, what is gray and furry and lives in eucalyptus trees? Dead silence. So she asks, yeah, children, what what is gray and furry and lives in eucalyptus trees? Still no answer. So she does what a Sunday school teacher always does in that situation. She picks on the pastor's kid. Danny, What's gray and furry and lives in eucalyptus trees?" And he responds slowly, Miss, I know the answer must be Jesus, but that sounds like a koala to me. <laughs> That's allegorical interpretation, classically Martin de Hahn writing of the tent pegs of the tabernacle. The pegs point to the Lord Jesus Christ in securing the believer in himself. In these brass pegs, we have the ground of our entire security in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The part of the pegs beneath the ground becomes a symbol of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The part that is above the ground suggests the resurrection. This is the gospel, the good news of salvation, the finished work that makes us secure. If the pins were driven all the way into the ground, they would be worthless. So, too, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ by itself could not save a single sinner. The good news of the gospel is not only the cross, not only the death of Christ for sinners, it is a death plus the resurrection of our Savior. Well, that is quite literally finding Christ buried in the Old Testament, but in a way that does violence to what the text originally intended. Actually, the reason why the tent pegs are part in the ground and part out of the ground is because otherwise you can't fasten a tent to them. That's it. The tabernacle, of course, does point forward to Christ, but the symbolism is in the big picture, not in the minute details allegorically explained. Now, this allegorical method is undoubtedly motivated by pastoral concerns. These are preachers who desire to help their people from all of the Scriptures. They understand that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, but they just don't know quite what to do with some of these hard passages. And although allegorical interpretation is unfashionable in the contemporary world, Charles Spurgeon defended it in his lectures to his students on the grounds of its pragmatic value. He says this, a great deal of real good may be done by occasionally taking forgotten, quaint, remarkable, out-of-the-way texts. I feel persuaded that if we appeal to a jury of practical, successful preachers, not theorizers, but men actually in the field, we shall have the majority in our favor. It may be that the learned rabbis of our generation are too exalted to stoop to the level of men of low standing, but we who have no high culture or profound learning or enchanting elegance to boast of have deemed it wise to use this very method, for we find it one of the best ways for keeping out of the rut of dull formality, and it yields a sort of salt with which to give flavor to an unpalatable truth." Now here I want you to notice the thrust of Spurgeon's defense of allegorical preaching. According to him, insisting that you should always preach the plain literal sense of the text is an elitist proposal. It is the kind of idea dreamed up by learned rabbis who love high culture and profound learning. Well, guilty. I teach at Westminster Seminary, what can I say? Um, He's right. It's a very difficult task to expound what he describes as the plain literal sense of the text, that is what the text meant in its original context, week after week after week. To do so requires a significant amount of hard work and depth of scriptural knowledge. This is why people come to Westminster Theological Seminary, to become specialists in the Bible. But those who by the grace of God are learned rabbis, whether by formal academic study or self-directed reading, should not be too quick to despise such simple proclamation of the gospel. In the history of church, many people have been brought to faith in Christ and nourished in the central truths of the gospel in that way. Even in Martin de Hahn's piece, everything he says is true, it's just not true about the tent pegs. And what God has chosen to use, perhaps we should not be overly hard on. But we should recognize that this kind of allegorical interpretation does have many dangers. Spurgeon himself is aware of some of them. He says, the exposition may strain common sense, as in the preacher who discoursed on the Trinity from the three baskets on the head of Pharaoh's baker. That's definitely a stretch. Uh, Allegorical interpretation may also be used as a means of impressing your audience with what a clever fellow you are. In some cases, he says, it may lead to undervaluing or forgetting the factual and historical nature of the text from which they're preaching. But one of the biggest drawbacks of allegorical interpretation is that it doesn't train listeners to interpret the scriptures for themselves. It inevitably leaves people impressed with the teacher's personal ability and spirituality rather than equipping them to feed themselves from the Word. The congregation emerges out of church saying, I would never in a million years have imagined that that truth was coming from that passage, instead of saying what they should be saying, which is, how obvious? I've read that passage before, and and I've never seen, and now it's so clear, so obvious that that's exactly what this passage means. Jim Elliott, one of those group of missionaries who were killed in 1947 while attempting to reach the Alca Indians of Ecuador, was an intensely, dauntingly spiritual young man. In fact, I would go so far as to say as that he would be the college roommate from hell. You know, it's Friday night, you wanna go down, yeah, get a Coke, go watch a movie with, you know, with somebody else, and he's getting on the train into Chicago so he can share the gospel. He takes up wrestling so he can pummel his body into submission. I would not have liked sharing a room with Jim Elliot. Um, But growing up on this diet of allegorical preaching, he once wrote this in his journal. Meditation yesterday on the curtains and boards of the tabernacle seemed fruitless. Somehow the study of the tabernacle seems fruitless. I can see no plausible interpretation method. My brethren who are older, much more experienced, are able to draw much from it in type. Lord, I need to have my spirit refreshed with some new thought from thy words. Open my eyes and let me behold some of those wondrous things contained in thy law. You see, Eliot felt that only the direct gift of divine insight could enable him to understand such an impossible text. And as a result, he beat himself up for being unable to pull the spiritual rabbit out of the hat in the way that his favorite preachers always seemed able to do. He he thought the problem was with him when actually it was with his preachers. And if we help people understand the true meaning of the text, they don't need to resort to allegorical interpretation to derive spiritual food from that part of God's Word. The second mistake people sometimes make, though, is the moralizing interpretation. Some people have been so eager to avoid the traditional allegorical way of interpreting the Old Testament and they've simply replaced it with a moralizing focus. So a sermon, for example, on Numbers 13 to 14, where the Israelite spies venture into the Promised Land and are terrified by the giants uh, who live there, is entitled, Slaying the Giants in Our Lives. The points of the sermon, as Dave Barry would say, I'm not making this up, the points of the sermon are as follows. A, the truth about giants in our lives. B, the trouble with giants in our lives. C, the different types of giants in our lives, difficulty, doubt, division, delay, delusion, and D, how to triumph over giants in our lives. I can see some of the pastors jotting down notes as we we speak for next Sunday's sermon here. The goal of a biblical sermon can never simply be how to solve a particular problem that you face. It cannot be three steps to a happy marriage or six ways to live a more fulfilled life. That preaching inevitably focuses on law more than gospel. It proclaims the imperative of the Bible, do this, without the indicative. This is what God has done. And as I said, I, I would hear that kind of moralizing message all the time. I remember one preacher who addressed us from the parable of the sheep and the goats, and he said, I can definitively reveal to you where Jesus is today. Jesus is in the, uh, the homeless man on the street. Jesus is in the friendless old lady in the nursing home. Jesus is in the inner city youth growing up in poverty, in the bad parts of town. Wherever somebody is in need, there is Jesus, and it's your job to take care of Jesus. He called us to find our acceptance before God in the good works that we do for God. No wonder he began his message by talking about his struggles with depression in ministry. I'd be depressed too if I thought that was the interpretation of the passage. You yeah, I, I wanted to, to, to run up to the front of the church. I didn't do this kind of a Presbyterian, but I wanted to run up to the front of the church and shout out a different answer to his question of where Jesus is, the one the Apostles' Creed gives us, that He has ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of God and He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Surely it, it is true that the Matthew passage does challenge me to meet my neighbor's need, and, and to recognize that when I do this for the least of these, I've done it for Jesus. But it does not intend to place that crushing burden on my shoulders as if I were Atlas, and God has no means of getting His will done except for me. I've heard preachers talk about God effectively as the great quadriplegic in the sky. He has no hands except your hands. He has no feet except your feet. He has no mouth except your mouth. Poor God! I don't think so. Christ has taken care of my deepest need by making me right with God at the cross. And having risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, now Christ, by His Spirit, is accomplishing all of His holy purposes, which includes making me willing and empowering me to minister to some of the needs of the lost and broken world around me. I love the humility of Ephesians 2.10. Where Paul talks about the good works that God prepared in advance for us to walk in, which means that there are some good works out there that He's prepared for somebody else to walk in, not for you. We need to understand that not every need constitutes a call. But for the moralizing approach, the Bible story is all about me. I should be like Joshua and Caleb because they weren't afraid of the giants. So go be like them. The gospel is not about what I should do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. So when you come to a passage like Ruth 3, where Ruth goes to Boaz and asks Boaz to marry her and be her kinsman redeemer, protecting and providing for her mother-in-law Naomi and for herself, is the point of that passage simply that to teach us to care for the poor people who live all around us, to be Boaz to their Ruth, to step into the gap as their kinsman redeemer, again I've heard sermons that focused on that. And certainly this passage does intend us to see Boaz as a model for our behavior. So the implied question, what would Boaz do, is not necessarily a wrong question. Now, I happen to take the view that there is no legal or moral obligation on Boaz to marry Ruth. If there were, all Ruth has to do is to walk up to Boaz in the marketplace and say, tag, you're it. You know what you know what you ought to do. When's the date? She doesn't do that because there is no legal or moral obligation on Boaz. Uh, there's, there's a nearer kinsman redeemer anyway. And the law says nothing about what you should do for people who leave the promised land and go off and live abroad and then are facing consequences of that. Um, Boaz would surely have fulfilled any obligation if there had been one, but of course the main problem with the what would Boaz do approach is that it misses the central character in the whole story. It misses the Redeemer who is closer to Naomi and Ruth than Boaz throughout the whole book, who is the Lord Himself. You remember the book of of Ruth begins with the observation, this is in the days when the judge is judged which of course is a more theological than temporal statement. It's reminding us that this story takes place in the days when people do what is right in their own eyes because there is no king in the land. And chapter one introduces us to a man whose name is Elimelech, which means my God is king, as anybody who's taken Hebrew one will recognize, but who does what is right in his own eyes. He leaves the promised land and goes to the land of Moab in search of bread. And the rest of the story is about God's response to that wayward family. Elimelech dies in exile, which is one potential outcome of that story. But the rest of the story focuses on what God does graciously in the lives of those who remain. It is God who forces Naomi out of her comfortable cohabitation with sin in Moab by leaving her bereft of her husband and her sons so she has no choice but to go back home in order that he can fill her with something better when she's forced to return to Bethlehem. He is the sovereign God who determines in chapter two that as chance, chance, the field in which Ruth went to glean just happened to belong to Boaz that Boaz was one of their kinsmen redeemers. It's God who overrules everything in this book for His intended purposes of grace for His people. In some ways, the book of Ruth is the Old Testament version of the parable of the prodigal son, in which the father displays his patient welcome for the returning daughter who has abandoned him and gone to live in the far country. But what precisely are God's purposes in this story? It's not simply so Ruth and Naomi will have bread in their table and a man in their lives. It's not simply so that nice old codger Boaz will get a cute little wife, and both of their stories will end happily, along with Naomi's, in the gift of a child. You know, God's purpose in all of this finally emerges at the end of the book of Ruth, with a genealogy that runs from Boaz and Ruth on down to the person of David. God, you see, is graciously going to provide a king of His choosing for His people, even though His people have relentlessly followed Elimelech's path of doing what is right in their own eyes. First of all, living as if they had no king in heaven or on earth, and then desiring a king just like the nations all around them. But the genealogy doesn't end at the end of Ruth. It doesn't simply point us forward to David. It also points us forward to the genealogy of the greater son of David, Jesus Christ himself, whose ancestry is similarly checkered. We too may have gone our own way, doing what is right in our own eyes, ending up like Elimelech, far from the promised land. We have sold our birthright. We have compromised away our integrity in search of bread that will not satisfy us but God will not leave us comfortably lost. Instead, he continues to redeem his people. So when Boaz says to Ruth, it is true that I am a near kinsman, but there is a kinsman redeemer who is closer than I, he speaks more profoundly than he knows. In Boaz's mind, he's referring to Mr. So-and-so, the nameless, deadbeat non-redeemer who blows his opportunity to get his name in the book of the Bible, in chapter 4. He's so concerned about protecting his name that he misses his chance. In reality, the whole story is a testimony to Israel's true kinsman redeemer, who is the Lord, who has been overseeing everything for the sake of His people. And the culmination of that care comes in sending Jesus, the friend of sinners, born from a long line of sinners, to redeem His people from their sins. If you see the story of Boaz and Ruth simply as inviting you to identify your own Ruths and Boazes and get busy with ministering to the poor in your community, you miss the activity of the major character in the book entirely. As a result, there's no gospel in your application, only law. The point of the passage becomes, be the redeemer for those lost and helpless people around you. That approach wants you to stand up and to say to people, come to me, all you who are are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If that's the only thing you say from this passage, it is crushing moralism. But in reality, Christ is the one to whom Boaz points in his obedience and He is the one who really gives rest to His people through His perfect obedience in our place. And we are then sent out to follow His example, to offer in His name rest that He has made available to the lost, the least, and the lost in our community. You still get to the application of ministry to the poor and the lost and the needy, but you get there through the lens of the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. And then a third pitfall is an overreaction to moralizing interpretation, an overreaction that denies any exemplary significance to the Old Testament. If moralism says the message of the text is, be like this Old Testament saint, dare to be a Daniel, be the best Boaz you can. Some other people have said, the the, the whole Bible is only ever about Christ, and therefore has nothing to say to you by way of the example of saints who've gone before us. And this too misses the point, because the Bible itself uses Scripture in this exemplary way. Even in the Old Testament, Abraham is regarded as an exemplary figure of faith and obedience. Isaiah 51, 2 The exiles in Babylon are urged to consider Abraham's experience as a model for their own. Look to Abraham your father, to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. Or just as Abraham had been called by God from the Babylonian city of Ur, against overwhelming odds, brought to the promised land, and given an inheritance, so also the exiles could rely on God to fulfill the promises that He had made to the patriarch. They could have faith that the God of Abraham would return them once again to the land. Impossible though that seemed. And Abraham and Sarah would provide a model for them to follow in faith. But the use of Abraham as an example goes back long before the exile. As you look at the unfolding narrative of Abraham in the book of Genesis, you find that his story is first written to provide encouragement for the generation in the wilderness, stuck in the gap between their calling out of Egypt by God and their still future possession of the land of promise. For them too, Abraham provided both examples to follow and warnings of sins to avoid. Have you ever noticed how the fertility of Egypt was a sidetrack for Abraham, just as it was for them? It's striking that the wife of promise is barren, but the slave girl, Hagar, who is fertile, where is she from? She's Hagar the Egyptian, repeated several times. When uh, Abraham offers Lot first choice of the land, you know, we, 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 we miss this as Westerners, Uh, Because when somebody asks you, do you want this or this, we say, okay, I'll have that. That's not an Eastern way of doing business. In the East, when somebody offers you this or this, and they're your superior, you're supposed to be, no, no, of course, I couldn't possibly, no, no, you you choose first. But Lot blazes right through that, and he chooses with his eyes, the land, you know, Abraham says, Choose, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right, Lot looks straight ahead and chooses the land that looks like the land of Egypt, like the Garden of Eden, both places of dangerous prosperity. You know, Egypt is, is this recurring theme in the Abrahamic narrative because there are lessons here that Moses' audience needs to learn. Well, what about us? We don't live in the wilderness of Sinai. We don't, we're, we're not with Israel in the, in, in the time of Moses. We're, we're not with the exiles amongst, uh, in Babylon. So how does this passage address us? Well, the writer of the Hebrews gives us the answer in Hebrews 3. He shows us the fundamental analogy that exists between our present situation as Christians and that of the wilderness generation. We, too, have not yet entered our rest, We, too, run the risk of disobedience to the gospel promise, falling short of God's blessing. Although everything in creation is subject to the authority of Jesus at present, we don't see that. And so we have to live by faith, just like our Old Testament forefathers. So we, too, can learn a great deal from Abraham's practical example of how to live by faith in this gap between what God has promised, and the reality that we see around us. But if Abraham is just an example, we are of all men most to be pitied. You see, this is where the gospel-centered approach provides a much-needed corrective, because who amongst us can live up to the standard of even a flawed hero like Abraham? Our salvation as Christians does not rest on trying to do what Abraham did. It rests Uh, in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and His perfect obedience in our place. That is how we are reconciled with God. To say it once again, the gospel is not what would Abraham do, it is what has Jesus done. And so when we read the Old Testament, we must see not only how Abraham provides a positive or negative example for us to imitate or avoid, but also how he acts as a forerunner and a shadow, pointing forward to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. Well, let me close by way of one thumbnail example from the person of Samson. What what, what do we make of Samson? The powerful strong man, last of the judges, uh, would have made a great front man in an 80s hairband. On the one hand, the superficial parallels between Samson and Jesus are striking. Uh, Barry Webb sketches them out. Here is a figure raised up by the Lord to save his people. His birth is announced beforehand by an angel. His conception is miraculous. He is rejected by his own people. Its leaders bind him and hand him over to their overlords. His saving work is completed in his death, a death in which he brings down the idol Dagon and lays the foundation for a deliverance to be more fully demonstrated in the future, in the life of David. In other words, here in this most unlikely figure, we see possibly more clearly than anywhere else in the Old Testament, the shape of things to come. That's what Ari Webb says. And certainly there are some remarkable similarities here, but if we simply focus on superficial parallels, we miss the deeper differences between the two figures we can very easily end up right back in allegory. The Samson's death, motivated as it is by his own desire for revenge, really form a direct comparison for the work of Christ on the cross. In fact, the differences between Samson and Jesus are really every bit as important as the similarities, and and the similarities heighten those differences. Samson is the very last of the deliverers in the book of Judges. And over the first 12 chapters of the book, we have seen a downgrade in in the Israelites and in their judges. From the high point of Othniel, the perfect judge, all the way down through Jephthah, who sacrificed his own daughter, and then ending up with Samson. Because of the repeated sin of idolatry, God has given His people the leaders they deserve. The ultimate punishment, you might say. And so by this point, we've come to have low expectations for the next leader, expectations that are momentarily challenged by his miraculous birth narrative. Maybe Samson, this child of promise, maybe he really will be the one to deliver his people from their bondage. But the narrator of the book has only raised our hopes in order systematically to demolish them. This boy, who is supposed to be set apart to the Lord as a Nazarite from his birth, progressively breaks every vow that is made on his behalf. The bumper sticker on Samson's chariot read, my body, my choice. Nazarites were supposed to stay away from dead things. Instead, Samson eats honey from a lion's carcass, and worse, hands it to his parents without notifying them. Nazarites were supposed to stay away from alcoholic beverages. Instead he hosts a mishter, which our English versions translate feast, which doesn't highlight the connection to the Hebrew word shatar, which means to drink. This is a drinking party. And I don't think Samson is a designated driver. Instead of staying separate from the pagan nations around Israel, Samson wants to marry a pagan woman simply because she looks good in his eyes. She looks right, literally, in his eyes. And then finally, the other mark of Samson's strength, uh, status as a Nazarite, is his uncut hair. And he himself tells Delilah, his gentile girlfriend, uh, that that is the mark of his strength. You know, Samson's decisions are the epitome of doing what is right in his own eyes as if there was no king in Israel. And his last words before he brings down that Philistine temple on top of himself are not exactly words of humble repentance. They're a vengeful desire to be identified with the Philistines in his death as he was in his life. No one in Israel is released from bondage by his death. By his stripes, we are not healed. So, So what do we do with Samson? Is he simply a cautionary tale about the dangers of misusing sex and alcohol, of mixing with the world instead of saying separate? Or is there more to it than that? How exactly does this wild man point us to the gospel? The answer is, you see, that each of the judges is in his own way a picture of Israel, and none more so than Samson. Israel, too, was called to be pure chosen by God before birth, brought into the land of promise to be a light to the Gentiles. But as their history unfolded, uh, they went their own way. Uh, They became just like the nations. And what will God do with such a people? Samson is not the servant of the Lord that Israel needs, even though he gives himself that title in Judges 15, 18. Will Israel's last cry also be simply for the Lord to bury them with their enemies in death because there was no king in their land? Well, if that is not to be the end of the story, we need another servant of the Lord to come. We need another one who will go down, not from the hill country of Israel to pagan Timnah, but from heaven to earth We need a new Israel who will go out in the power of the Spirit to bring salvation and not death to the nations, whose coming will bring forth living water, not just to quench his own thirst, but to satisfy the spiritual thirst of all peoples. We need somebody whose holiness is not limited to an external sign like uncut hair, but is an internal reality so that as the new Israel, he can act to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. We need someone who is willing to be bound and mocked and scourged and put to death as a public spectacle, not so that he can get revenge on his enemies, but so that through his death, God's enemies can be reconciled to him. We need the servant of the Lord that death cannot hold any more than those new ropes could hold Samson. We need the one who would burst forth from the tomb on the third day and bring his people into full and final rest. We need King Jesus to come and reign as our king. You see, this is what we constantly need to have our eyes refocused on. The gospel good news that Jesus Christ has come to be our righteousness to die for our sins, to be raised up from the dead and present us spotless before our heavenly Father. That's the same message that the Old Testament saints received in shadows and types, the message that we will never grow beyond. That's the message we're intended to see over and over again every time we open the Old Testament, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow.